Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, January 29th, 2006, show number 8. Today's topics are IPv6 readiness and fitness for geeks. For comments and questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org, you can Skype us at IntIce, or you can IM us at int underscore ice on Yahoo or intellectualice on AIM. Here's your host, Robert Raplin. Hi there, and welcome back. This is Robert Raplin, and I'll be hosting the first segment today. I'm talking with Brett Thorson over Skype today about IPv6 readiness. Hi, Brett. Hello, Robert. So what have you been up to in the world of IPv6? Well, right now I'm working for a company called Ravenwing out in Reston. I'm there as a network scientist studying IPv6, and I'm also a member of the North American IPv6 Task Force, trying to get people to use IPv6 and trying to get them to implement it correctly. So tell me, how ready is the industry's hardware and software for IP version 6? The corporate stuff is coming along quite well. So the Juniper, the Cisco, the foundries of the world have implemented IPv6 in most of their hardware. So if you buy their, you know, not necessarily only their high-end stuff, but it is filtering down into their commodity hardware for businesses, it's been implemented to the specification of the RFC. That doesn't mean that it's gotten that hardcore testing that the hackers and the crackers and the black hats and the white hats are going to be able to do to it. So you have to kind of run with it, but you still have to be cautious about it. At the same time, not a whole lot of people have experience implementing it either, so that's kind of going to be a learning curve that may come back to bite some people. As far as the home users go, there's going to be quite a while until you see IPv6 on your mom's computer. Frankly, a lot of the applications might not support it yet. Corporate, it's getting there and it's getting implemented, but it still needs some maturity. The home stuff is still not there yet. Okay, let's do a little implementation guide here. Say I want to set up IP version 6 at my house or my business. Where would I start? Well, the first thing in any new endeavor, of course, is education. So you want to go out and start reading or talking about or hanging around with people who know as much as possible about the subject. The reason I'm staying away specifically from the word books is because IPv6 is still a moving target. The RFCs have been published for the original version for quite some time at the IETF, but new versions of those RFCs just got published that deprecated the old ones. Even as people are implementing IPv6, it's still changing. They're not huge changes, but if you read a book today and it still mentions site local, that's been deprecated. As of June of 2006, that will no longer be around. So education is the first thing. There's a lot of good how-tos also, especially for Linux on the net. If you just do how-to IPv6, a lot of good information. So what kind of organizations should I look for out on the net for this kind of information? The two best resources that I've found so far, now I'm a Linux user, so that kind of guides my goal, but how-to IPv6 tells you how to set up IPv6 on your Linux machine. Microsoft actually has some really good guides. One of them is actually published by a person called The Cable Guy. So he has some really good tutorials on the Microsoft website. And the TCP IP guide, if you type that into Google, is a huge website. You can actually buy the book from that website too, but it's a very extensive book. He does a very good job of explaining to you what these things mean. And the other good thing is if you just go to the website and read it, he updates it very well. So it doesn't have a lot of the older things that may not be applicable anymore. Cool. So then what? 
So once you've kind of learned about it, there's there's two more steps. One is each of your hosts needs to be IPv6 capable. In the IPv6 world, we call that a node. So a node is anything that runs IPv6, be it a computer or a router or a switch. In this case, we need to make sure that our computers can support IPv6. Linux has supported this for quite a while. The Microsoft Windows platform in 2000, I believe you can get a service pack to add it. Windows XP adds it in service pack 2 and the, the Vistas and all the things that are coming out later will support it. So once you make sure that your computers or your operating systems can handle it, you're halfway there. And there's one more thing that you have to do. You have to get IPv6 to your house. Now, if you're in a place like Japan, that's real easy. They've been sending IPv6 to the home users for quite some time. Here in the United States, we are behind. So you're going to need to do what's called a tunnel. In essence, your cable company or Verizon or SBC or whomever you have as your internet provider is probably still playing with IPv6 themselves. So they don't send it down their wire natively. So what you need to do is set up a little island in your house of IPv6 connectivity, and then you tunnel that over the IPv4 network back to another IPv6 island, but in this case, hopefully that island is connected to the rest of the IPv6 world. So first you need to learn about it, then you need to make sure that your computer supports it, and then you actually need to get connectivity to it via the tunnel. Okay. So, okay, let's take a step back. Before I open myself up to the wide world of Hacker Hurt and uh, hook myself up to the internet, is there something I can do to play with it to just make sure I know what I'm doing and set up my security? You bet. One of the nice things about IPv6 is the link local address. What happens when any IPv6 node or computer comes up and they support IPv6, they create an address for themselves that is an IPv6 link local address, meaning that that address won't be seen on the rest of the internet. So if I have a computer in the basement and I have another computer in the attic and I plug them into my Cat5 Ethernet infrastructure, and both of those support IPv6, they will both give themselves a link local address, and then both of those machines will be able to talk to each other. Which means I can have an IPv6 network in my house without necessarily connecting to the outside world. Sweet. Yeah, this is awesome because now you can sit there and play in your own home with IPv6 and not have to worry about all of the security features that hopefully you're going to learn about later. So anything we really got to know before we fire up our IPv6 stacks? Sure. So let's say you have a local IPv6 network via your link local addresses. What's nice is you can then play with and tune your firewalls. And your firewall is probably going to be one of the most important things you can do for IPv6. The reason being is IPv6 can carry a whole lot of different data. And right now, if you're going to be playing with it at home, your home little Linksys or D-Link firewall isn't going to know anything about IPv6. So that means all good and bad and mean and white data and black data and all kinds of data is going to come zipping right past your IPv4 firewall right onto your IPv6 enabled computer. In that way, you need to have a firewall on every computer. So let's say again, you have the computer in the basement and the one upstairs. If you know you're going to want to run an IPv6 web server, you're going to want to use SSH, you can set up those firewalls and play with them and fine tune them and make sure that your computer in the basement can still access your web server in the attic. And once you've gotten comfortable with those firewalls, then you can go ahead and turn yourself on. 
Having a firewall on every node is going to be very important for other reasons like encryption because encryption is going to go right past your firewall and right onto the computer. So again, you'll need to protect each and every computer with your firewall. All right. So in, in general, how does IPv6 security differ from that of IP version 4? One of the great benefits of IPv6 is that you're going to have a global internet address. The IPv4 address that we get from our provider changes via DHCP because there's not enough of them. What's great with IPv6 is there's so many addresses, you can be assigned an address and you can basically keep it for as long as you need it. So this is great because if I go to my tunnel provider and I request a prefix, and we'll get into that later, but if I request a prefix, I then have an address that is mine and mine only, which means that if... Well, you, you, you get a whole subnet of addresses, don't you? That's right. I actually get a subnet. I get a slash. Right now, from the provider I get, I get a slash 48. You can also get a slash 64 and even a slash 128. We can talk about that in a little bit. Essentially, the provider is going to assign me something that's unique and more permanent than the DHCP IPv4 addresses that we've been getting. So this is great because if my computer network or my one of my computers on my host, let's say just one computer, let's say my attic computer gets a virus and it starts spewing out all sorts of trash onto the internet. Well, in the old days, people would just kind of look at it and go, oh, well, that's coming from, you know, uh, AOL users. So I'm just going to block all traffic from AOL because that computer would be bouncing around the DHCP address space. Now with IPv6, it's great because that address is going to be fairly static. So you can say, that computer right there, I don't want to talk to it anymore. So what other kind of security mechanisms does IPv6 have built into it? There's two more that are really cool. There's IPsec, and we'll talk to, about that in just a second. And the first one is privacy extensions. So now that we have a global internet address that you know pinpoints me wherever I am, we have a problem with that. Let's say I go to my provider and they assign me a slash 64 subnet. I then take my MAC address, I add a little bit of bits here and there to make it fit the other 64 bits. So I take the 64 bits from my provider, I add my 64 bits, I have a 128-bit address. The problem with that is, let's say I have a compact handheld, so I'm using it in my house. And then I go to Starbucks and I use it. And then I go to Iceland and I use it. And then I go to San Francisco. Because those last 64 bits are always going to be the same, it's going to be easy for somebody to track my usage on the internet. I'm constantly getting the first 64 bits from whatever provider that I'm attached to. The last 64 bits are going to stay the same. That's where privacy extensions come in. Privacy extensions randomize those last 64 bits. So it gets more difficult for somebody to track you around the internet to see what traffic you're sending or receiving from that device. It's basically like hiding behind randomization. If you only have one computer behind your entire network, turning on privacy extensions may not be that useful. Granted, it'll be harder for people to target your computer if they don't know the address because it'll be moving. But if you're trying to hide, might not be that useful since there's only one computer behind that network and it's constantly saying, you know, let's say it's constantly going to Yahoo. It might not be that useful. So also what's nice about these global addresses is that there's so many of them. 64 bits is quite a lot of possibilities for a computer address address. That means that if somebody wants to try to find every single computer on my network from an outside network, it's going to be very difficult. 
difficult. They're going to have to go through all two to the 64 addresses to find all of the computers on my network. There's one caveat to that. If you actually get access to my network, there's a specific address that you can ping. It's called the link local multicast address. And that will return a ping back from every node that's on your link. So it's difficult to do a scan from outside the world into your network, but if somebody gets access to your network, then it's really easy to do a map of your entire infrastructure. A couple minutes ago, you mentioned IPsec. Isn't that built into the protocol now? Every computer or node that has to support IPv6 is kind of required by the protocol to also support IPsec. This is where you sometimes run into problems. So you asked me before, is the hardware ready for IPv6? And yes, it is. And sometimes you'll actually see a little star next to some hardware saying, we are IPv6 ready. Well, except for that IPsec part. But hopefully that should come along, and I expect it to. So does most everybody else. So IPsec is built into IPv6 in that the placeholders are there for it to integrate easily into the protocol. IPsec was actually available for IPv4. It was backported to IPv4. The problem is that it doesn't play well with network address translation, or NATS, which is what most people are using. It's possible, but it's just not friendly. When the IPv Next Generation Working Group, now the IPv6 Working Group, came along, they said, let's build this in. But they built in the possibility to use it. So when you turn on IPv6, you don't automatically get all of the magic and security of IPsec. You get the magic and security of knowing that you can now implement it if you so choose. What's the problem then? The first problem is that a lot of people think that as soon as they turn on IPv6, they automatically get IPsec. And that's not true. And it's pretty easy to figure out who does and who doesn't have IPsec working because you ask them about their public key infrastructure, their PKI. And if they give you that deer in the headlights look, then you know they haven't gone that extra step. In order to use IPsec, you need a public key infrastructure some way for all of your machines to know who to trust. That sounds complicated. Uh, Don't they have that for IP version 4 now? They have it for IPv4, but they have it a couple layers up the stack. So let's go think about PayPal.com. They have SSL certificates. Okay. What happened is PayPal had, let's just keep it simple and say they have a web server that they need to secure. So they go out to VeriSign and they buy a certificate for that one server. We now have a third party verifying that that server is exactly who they say they are and they have a certificate. So our browsers come along and say, I want to connect to PayPal. And PayPal says, well, here's my certificate. My browser knows that it can trust VeriSign because it's pre-programmed in there. So it says, hey, VeriSign, is this really PayPal's SSL certificate? VeriSign says, you bet it is. You can go ahead and trust them. And that's all fine and good. The reason why it's simple in that case is there's one PayPal server, again, There's actually many, but let's just keep it simple here. There's one PayPal server, there's one certificate. Our browsers don't need a certificate because PayPal doesn't necessarily need to trust us. We need to trust PayPal. The problem with that setup is now when we're talking node to node to node, so all three computers in my house, let's say, want to talk to each other, all three need to have a certificate and all three need to know the certificates of all the other computers. Certificates are kind of expensive, aren't they? Certificates are expensive, and it's a lot of manpower just to manage them. If you have a 
network of a thousand computers and you add one more, you need to add a thousand certificates to that one computer and you now need to add that one certificate to a thousand computers. And that happens every time you add or remove a machine. So it gets to be a very difficult wow. setup to do. Right now, there aren't any free public key infrastructure systems and it's a problem that is kind of weighing people down. So. It gets to be that the only time IPsec is used is either in small organizations or specifically where people really have to have that level of security and they can pay for it. Let's go back to an earlier question. We were talking about firewalls. I've got to put a firewall on every one of my machines here at home. Is there a decent commercial firewall out there for the home that handles IP version 6? There are projects out there where you can turn the Linksys home router into an IPv6 router and a firewall. But again, that's kind of homebrew. So if we look at purely what's out there that I don't have to flash my own ROM for, we'd be looking at Linux the FreeBSD, the NetBSD, and even Microsoft Windows at this point. In Linux and Unix and FreeBSD, you can use IP tables that supports IPv6. And for Windows, they have an IPv6 firewall built in. Where you won't see support are things like the semantic antivirus or the semantic personal firewall. That does not support IPv6 at the moment. If you're going to look for firewalls, look for them supported by the operating system more than supported by these third-party companies. There just isn't the home user need or demand for it yet. Well, I think we've just covered the security end adequately. So, okay, I'm secure. How do I go get me one of these global addresses? How do I actually go about hooking up to the IPv6 internet? Well, if you're listening to us in Japan, then you're in luck. A lot of the Japanese ISPs are actually starting to push IPv6 to the home user. If you're in the States or maybe parts of Europe, you might not be so lucky. Europe more than the United States, but in the United States, you won't be so lucky. And that's where we need to go get one of those tunnels. The great thing about it is that there are many tunnel providers and many of them are free. The one I use is from a company called Hexago and they offer a product called FreeNet6. They allow you to connect to their network and send them IPv6 traffic just as happy as you please. So if you do need one, you just go out to, you know, you can type into Google free IPv6 tunnel and you'll get a nice listing of them. What's cool is there are even clients that you can put on your computer that will set up the tunnel for you. And then you'll also need a, a router advertisement daemon that will then take the prefix from the tunnel provider and then advertise it to your home network. I've got a global IP address. Now what? Well, now there's cool things you can do if you're a network geek. But as far as just the home user, it's not too interesting. You can go to a webpage, www.kame.net, and see a little dancing turtle. You can... Make the turtle dance. Exactly. Make the turtle dance. You can install like I have on Firefox, a little thing that tells you what address you're going to. If it's green, it's an IPv6 address. If it's red, it's an IPv4 address. And maybe there's a couple peer-to-peer applications you can use. But honestly, you know, if you get IPv6 working in your house, you're not going to have neighbors knocking on your door demanding to see the cool new thing you have. It's just going to work, and you're just going to kind of look at it and go, hey, look, but, i got to work. Yeah, but that's pretty much the point, isn't it? Make it make the difference transparent? That's true. Both from a personal and a business perspective, should we dive into it now, or should we wait for the killer app to make it worthwhile? Well, and that kind of goes back to our last question about what happens when you finally get it working. 
it's not all that sexy at the moment. I mean, it's interesting for us because we're all computer network enthusiasts. So we're going to think that it's really neat. But at the home user level, it's probably not that necessary to dive into it. If you're going to be supporting a business or if you're in the military, then it's very important that you start tinkering with these things and learning them and, and start ramping up your knowledge. But if you are building a new house or you are starting a new business, you don't necessarily need to run out to Best Buy or CompUSA and demand all IPv6 network infrastructure. Chances are the people who work at those stores are going to look at you like a deer in headlights and not really understand what you're talking about. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. I called the Linksys people a couple months ago and the person didn't even know what the internet protocol was. Scary. Yup, and that's what you run into. So diving into it right now at the home user level, it's going to be interesting if you think IPv6 is cool, but it's not going to you know, increase your download speeds. It's not going to give you access to content that wasn't available before. Some people are waiting for that next killer app. Honestly, from what I've seen is the, the next killer app is going to run at the application level on the on the seven layer OSI stack. So if you're waiting for the next killer app for IP, chances are all of these applications are going to run over IPv6 or IPv4. Now, in an, another couple of years, you may actually see applications come out that only run on IPv6. In that case, that's going to be the killer app that I guess you're going to need to make the transition. Well, okay. That was a lot of really interesting and useful information. Brett, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You take the blue pill, Morpheus says, and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. The choice is familiar to all of us. We make it every time we decide between steady employment or entrepreneurship, between watching TV or picking up a book, between vacation or overtime. The blue pill leads us to comfort and convenience and the self-assurance that comes from never having your ideas or abilities challenged. The red pill results in risk and hard work but offers far greater rewards. This dichotomy of attitudes has been called many things. The type A and type B personalities, the actors in the audience. They call each other workaholics and loafers. When you peel away the pop psychology and accusations, these two groups become the doers and the beers. A red pill's life is one of pushing, pushing his own limits and others' tolerance, pushing the edges of what is permitted, pushing others to accept his ideas and go along with them, or at least get out of the way. Blue pills, by contrast, are notorious for self-denial and engage in many forms of behavior to try and hide their condition. Wannabes wear the clothing and drive the cars of red pills. Bureaucrats use endless paperwork to track the activities of red pills and often use it to drag the red pills down to their speed. Gossips talk incessantly about what the red pills are doing, filling up petabytes of blog space with meaningless chatter. Nitpickers argue and obsess about the particulars, packaging, and presentation. For the archetypical blue pill, it becomes a game to become far too busy to actually accomplish anything. For all their inactivity, blue pills do serve an indispensable function in our society. 
Like neutrons in an atomic nucleus, they act to bind us together, preventing the red pills from all flying off in their own directions. They are the architects of teamwork and social interaction. Fortunately, most of us lie in the broad continuum between those extremes, exhibiting characteristics of each without committing ourselves to a life of wasted time or clock watching. Driven by confidence and ambition, lethargy and uncertainty, we choose our paths anew with every decision that comes before us. There's a tendency to follow the path that has served us well before and to shun the one that has caused us failure. Because the red path is more prone to danger, we tend to become more strongly blue pill as we get older. This tendency is not irreversible nor unalterable. Those who are aware of why they're making their decisions can examine their decisions more closely and identify where their confidence fails, their energy flags. At that point, the person can make a conscious decision of their path based on its destination, not on where one stands right now. In the end, although the choice between red pill and blue pill is an important one to recognize in the future, it is ever more important to figure out which path we have chosen in the past and understand how that brought us to the decisions before us right now. Icebergs. I'm your host, Jim Vance. For our segment, we've got Fitness Tips for Geeks with Jan Stapleman. Jan, thank you for being here today. I'm glad to be here. little background information on you. You've been involved in educational writing in some way or another for the last 20 years. Specifically, for the last five years, you've been developing some training courses for adult learning on business skills. And your key passion in life is fitness and being a show about fitness for geeks. This is why you're here. So if you can give me some more background on that. Okay, Jim. Well, what I'm doing, as you said, I've been writing training for some time now. And what I want to transition into is combining my training expertise with my passion, which is for fitness. So I'm building on basically 20 years of working out and all the knowledge I've gained from reading and from doing and from colleagues and so forth to kind of formalize this with some credentials. I'm going to first go after personal trainer certification as kind of a basic certification with the AFAA, Aerobic and Fitness Association of America. And then I will go on and get national certification through the National Board of Fitness Examiners. Then I want to go after some specialized certifications, but <laughs> related probably to weight management, midlife, fitness, and so forth. What exactly those will be will depend on the training needs that I see at that point. Fantastic. Okay, if people have been inactive most of their lives, and geeks do have this problem as a general rule, we spend a lot of our time in front of computers and that sort of thing, why should we believe that we can change the way we are now and become active people? What's the core of that belief? Well, I know that people who have been inactive all of their lives, all of their adult lives at least, can become very active, lead a very active lifestyle, because this is the change that I made in my life. 
When I was in my mid-30s, I had been a couch potato all of my adult life, and I have to say pretty much in my teen years as well. I didn't participate in sports, and I was just a couch potato for many, many years. And the result of that was that every year I gained a little more weight, and I went up in sizes and up in sizes. And I was also an ex-smoker. I smoked very heavily for more than 10 years. I quit when I was 29. So by the time I was in my mid-30s, I was in mom mode, and I was overweight and kind of lethargic, and it was real easy to reach the wrong way and pull a muscle. I had back problems from sitting in front of the computer working all the time. Just did not feel that great. The breaking point for me was when I went shopping for clothes and found that I had gone up yet another dress size, and I just hit a wall. I just decided I I, I don't like living like this. I'm not happy. I don't feel well. I've got to change this. I pretty much started with very little guidance. I decided to just walk out the door from the building where I worked at the time and walk the few blocks to a park that had a fitness trail around the perimeters. And the idea was that you were supposed to run between the stations where you stopped and did exercises. And at that point, I could not run between the stations, even though they were pretty close together. I just wasn't fit enough. So I kind of waddled down the few blocks from my building to the park, and then I kind of waddled in between the stations and tried my best to do the various push-ups and pull-ups and so forth. I did this over a summer and got more and more energy and more fit as I did this. At the same time, I modified the way that I ate. I did not diet. I don't believe in dieting. I think dieting is terribly destructive, especially to weight management. Also, I can't stand to be hungry. You can ask my kids. I get mean when I'm hungry. So fortunately, I was working out. This made it possible to just modify the way I ate and still lose weight. If you try to lose weight just by dieting while you're a couch potato, it is really, really hard. So my approach to modifying food intake is to, and well, it's rather novel, it's to eat less and to also just eat more nutritious food instead of junk. So I did this over the summer, and I lost quite a bit of weight. I don't know how much I lost because I didn't weigh myself back then. I still don't. I don't believe in scales because you can get obsessive about them. But I went down a couple of dress sizes and was feeling much better and got a little bored with this activity, decided I wanted to do something more aerobic. I didn't really feel like I was ready for a gym at that point, so I joined a local community rec center and started doing the aerobics classes there. They were a little less hardcore than the ones at the gyms. I was pretty inept. I was the one stumbling around in the back with a red face gasping for air. But gradually I got more coordinated and more fit, and pretty soon I was kicking butt in the uh, community rec center and wanted more. So I joined a gym, and the gym that I joined was primarily a, a weightlifting center, but it had an aerobic component, and that's, that's what I joined for. Did aerobics there and was really, at that point, pretty fit. I got interested in lifting weights at that point. That was five years in from when I had first made this change in my life. I started lifting weights, and that was a truly amazing thing. Nothing changes the shape of your body more than lifting weights. I was fairly trimmed down at that point, but I didn't have the definition, and lifting weights made the difference. Also, the amazing thing about when I started lifting weights was that I gained 10 pounds, but I went down another size. And the reason for that is that muscle weighs more than fat, and the muscle was in the right places. The fat, however, had not been in the right places. 
So the end of this story is that that was 20 years ago that I made that change, and I have been extremely active ever since. I've kept my weight down, and my MO is to mix it up and do a lot of different activities. So I routinely, and I, I don't mean to imply that I do all these things in one week, but I lift weights regularly. I'm very disciplined about that. I run. I do aerobic classes like kickboxing and steps. I work in yoga as often as I can. And then occasionally I get on my bike. I get on my rollerblades. Oh, I hike regularly or snowshoe if it's winter and do Pilates once in a while. So basically I mix it up. I try to do as many different activities as I can because it's fun. And this is my life now. Well, can I really expect to change my body all that much if I've been a certain way for a certain period of time? I mean, my, myself, I've been overweight for a good 20 years now. Can I really expect to change myself now? This is one of the most amazing things about our bodies, Jim. This miracle to me is, is akin to the little newts and salamanders where you can lop off a limb and they re- generate a new limb. It is amazing to me the impact that we can have on our bodies, on changing the shape and the size of our bodies, no matter when we start in life. Now granted, we're a certain height and we're a certain size to a certain point. I am five feet tall. I am never going to be five feet two. I have a pear-shaped body and that's just the shape that I am. But the ability that we have to shape our bodies and to size our bodies is really astounding and you can start at any point in life. Okay. What about the type of people who are happy with the way they look, even if they aren't the most fit or the most active? Why should that type of person, why should we who are happy with ourselves bother working out? There are a lot of reasons to work out, Jim, besides just the way you look or just a vanity thing. Evidence from research has been piling up for years showing that exercise can help prevent heart attacks, cancer, diabetes, strokes, many other serious health problems. The list just goes on and on. Well, Shakespeare basically told us that we start to die from the moment we're born, so what's the point? I mean, do we really need to extend a few extra years on our lives? What's really the point behind doing that? Well, it isn't just about longevity. It's about the quality of your life. The health problems that I cited don't always kill you right away, but they sure can drastically reduce the quality of your life and, and basically make you miserable. In addition, research shows that being active can help prevent dementia and depression, can boost your immune system, your mobility, even your sexual function. So what's not to like about these results? For me, it comes down to, as I get older, do I want to be sick and stiff and sore and immobile, or do I want to be more healthy and spry and comfortable? To an extent, it's my choice. Now, you're right. We're mortal beings. We're going to die, all of us, and we're going to get sick, all of us. We all have our genetic predispositions to certain health problems. In my family, it's cancer, and I've already had a little tussle with cancer. So we can't ward off illness to a complete degree, but we can make ourselves feel a heck of a lot better, and we can certainly increase our odds. I think the reason that I went through treatment for cancer as well as I did was because I have such a healthy lifestyle and pretty much skated through it. So definitely it's about quality of life, not just longevity. Not just vanity as well. That's right. Okay. You mentioned research studies earlier. Can you give us some examples of what they show us about fitness? Sure. You know, what I'll do is I'll run through a few of this as quickly as I can, and then the links and the citations will be posted at, in the forum for Fantastic. this segment. Fantastic. And then we'll move on to actually how to get started. Beautiful. Okay? How about starting us with probably the most important organ besides the brain, the heart? Okay. Research shows that exercise protects your heart and your blood vessels by boosting HD 
LDL, that's good cholesterol, making the endothelium, that's the lining of the blood vessels, more flexible. So it's the difference between pumping blood through a rubber hose versus through a PVC pipe and lowering blood pressure. Exercise even helps after a heart attack to prevent another one. A study cited in the 2001 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association followed almost 40,000 healthy women aged 45 and older for five years and found that those who walked briskly for at least an hour a week were half as likely to be diagnosed with heart disease as women who didn't walk regularly. One hour a week, Jim. That's pretty amazing. That is. And for women who jogged or did other more vigorous exercise, the risk was reduced even more. Amazing. Well, how about the sexiest part of the human body, the brain? (laughs) Research shows that more physical activity equals a lower risk for dementia. In the cardiovascular health cognition study conducted from 1992 to 2000, more than 3,000 older men and women who reported doing at least four activities, such as walking, gardening, jogging, and so forth, in the previous two weeks were half as likely to be diagnosed with dementia five years later than those who reported no more than one activity like that. Amazing. Now, you mentioned cancer is something very personal to you. Can you give us some more information about that? Yes. A meta-analysis, a study of studies, conducted by Harvard researchers, revealed that physically active people have a 30 to 40 percent lower risk of colon cancer. Other research suggests that regular exercise lowers the risk of breast cancer by 20%. In both cases, we probably need 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity activity per day. Now, what about this um, new epidemic that's striking America and, and spreading across the globe as well, diabetes? Yes, the bad news is that inactivity equals insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes, which is the most common type, happens when the body becomes resistant to insulin. This causes a rise in blood sugar and eventually leads to diabetes. The good news is that regular exercise can reverse the damage by increasing insulin sensitivity and helping cells process glucose. The Nurses Health Study, conducted from 1992 to 1998 among women, linked every two hours per day of watching TV to a 14 increase in the risk of diabetes and every two hours per day of sitting at work that's what most of us do who work in front of computers all day including myself every two hours per day of sitting at work was linked to a seven percent increase and conversely every hour of brisk walking per day was linked to a 34 percent decrease in the risk of diabetes so obviously combating diabetes has to deal with mobility, so let's transition into mobility. Mobility. This is a huge issue. Women's muscles begin to atrophy at about age 40, and for men this starts in the late 50s. Well, when your muscles begin to atrophy, you lose mobility. A study reported in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in 2001 found that people can gain the same amount of muscle mass from weightlifting regardless of age or gender. Now, add to that mobility problem, osteoporosis, which is fragile bones, and and this happens as we age. It's just our muscles become less dense. Osteoporosis causes one and a half million fractures per year in the United States. A Tufts University study in 1994 found that high-intensity strength training, in other words, weightlifting, is an effective means to preserve bone density while improving muscle mass, strength, and balance. And this study was conducted in postmenopausal women. What happens when you lose mobility is you just simply can't do the things that you used to do, like even walking or climbing stairs, and it leads to accidents. Osteoporosis starts years before it starts to take away the quality of your life, so it's something that we can begin working on in midlife or even younger and ward off problems in our older years. 
One out of every three people over age 75 falls each year, and many don't recover. Of those who break a hip, only one out of three regain their independence, and one out of four die within a year after their fracture. So this is a very serious problem that we can help ward off early in life so we don't have problems later in life. It very much sounds like it. Now, switching gears slightly, what about something more psychological and bringing more specifically into the realm of depression? A 2002 study of almost 2,000 residents in California between the ages of 50 and 94, this was reported in the American Journal of Epidemiology, showed that people who were active were 20% less likely to be diagnosed with depression. Now, the amount of exercise determined the impact, Jim. So those who cycled or ran on a treadmill for 180 minutes a week, which is about 30 minutes, minutes a day had less depression than those who cycled or ran for only 80 minutes a week. Another thing about exercise is that not only does it provide long-term benefits in, in terms of warding off depression, but it also gives you an immediate boost to your mood, and you can test this by going out and taking a walk and seeing how your mood is elevated. The runner's high, the endorphin boost, that sort of thing. You got it. Fantastic. Well, what most people tie to activity and fitness and is a prevalent thing in the vanity realm as well. What about weight loss? Well, weight, as you know, is a huge problem, especially in the United States. What happens is people who don't exercise gain an average of one to five pounds per year. You add that up over the years, and eventually you're overweight. That's what happened to me. The worst problem is gaining visceral fat. That's the inner layer of abdominal fat linked to heart disease and diabetes. The 2001 Journal of American Medical Association study that I cited previously, you know, the one that followed about almost 40,000 women. Right. That found that the risk of obesity was 68% higher in women who watch TV for 20 to 40 hours a week and twice as high in women watching TV for more than 40 hours a week than for women who watch no TV. And each hour of brisk walking per day cut the risk of obesity by 24%. Amazing. So how does a person get started with this sort of activity? First of all, number one, if you are a man age 45 or older or a woman age 55 or older, you should begin by going and having a physical exam and getting your doctors okay and finding out about any limitations you might have. Also, anyone with a serious health issue should do this. Second, you need to know how to stretch properly. Actually, we all need to know how to stretch properly. I used to have terrible back problems from sitting and working in front of a computer. This can cause back problems, neck problems. After running to the doctor or chiropractor or physical therapist every few months with terrible lower back problems, I finally figured out that if I stretched every day with a series of stretches that I learned for my back, I could eliminate this. And I truly have not been back to a doctor or, or any professional, health professional, for back problems since I started stretching every day. So this is a very important thing. But it's also terribly important if you're going to start using your muscles in new ways. You can learn how to stretch properly for many different sources. Prevention.com has a good guide to stretching. There are books on this. Doing yoga is so good for you in so many ways, but it is the ultimate in stretching. And you can also learn from a personal trainer. Third, nutrition. We all need proper nutrition for our bodies to work correctly, but it's especially important when you become active. How do you learn about good nutrition? We can't possibly cover it here in this podcast. That would be another couple of podcasts probably. 
One of the best sources for information about nutrition and food is the Center for Science and the Public Interest, CSPI. That organization puts out a monthly newsletter called the Nutrition Action Health Letter. You can go to that organization's website and subscribe for, I think their offer for new subscribers is $10 a year. And I subscribe to this newsletter. It has the latest research findings on nutrition and food. Another good source is Prevention.com. They have a very good section on nutrition. We can't really cover it all here, but a couple of tips on what you're putting in your body when you get started working out. Water. Your body needs lots of water to work correctly, and you feel so much better if you drink a lot of water. At least eight eight 8-ounce glasses a day. I do more than that. You can replace at least some of the soft drinks and juices that you drink with water or even tea. It gets rid of all those empty calories, and it's so much better for your body. Another thing is replace junk snacks with fruit and vegetables. Bring healthy snacks to work with you where you can reach for them and, and instead of trekking to the machine and buying junk. And bring a healthy lunch to work. So those are a few tips about nutrition. Okay, so you've got your doctors okay, you're learning how to stretch. Where do we go from there? Where do we start? If you've been inactive for a long time, I really think the best place to start is walking. It's just so easy. You walk out your front door and explore your neighborhood, or you walk in some section of town that's interesting to you. It's a good idea to buy good quality, comfortable walking shoes. This will make the experience much more pleasant for you. And if it's cold outside, you can invest in some good warm clothing, although you find if you walk briskly, you don't need as many layers as you might think. Try to increase your distance a little bit every day or every week. Write down what you're doing. Set goals. After a while, you can even get involved in races for good causes. They call these things races, but hundreds of people sign up and walk, and you can actually use your walking to raise money for a cause that you care about. Race for the cure, for example. Exactly. If you want to get into something aerobic or have access to equipment and you don't feel you're ready for a gym, you can always try a community rec center. If you're going to be involved in using equipment, it's really important to hire a personal trainer if at all possible, at least in the beginning, to make sure that you're setting good habits, that you're using good form, you're using the equipment correctly. A personal trainer is very helpful in helping you set goals and really laying out a great program for you to follow, even if you just have a personal trainer initially. If you can't afford a trainer or you don't want that expense, you should definitely take advantage of the free training sessions that are offered when you first join a gym. Then continue to ask questions. After your, your initial training sessions are over, you have a question, you're uncertain if you're using equipment correctly, that's what the staff is there for. Go ask questions. They'll be glad to help you. Okay. Now, geeks are extremely busy people, as you well know. We have our work, but we also have other things we're involved in, our gaming circles, hopefully some geek dating tips are being taken to heart, that sort of thing. Can we realistically work exercise into our daily lives without impacting our daily lives and our routine? I would love to tell you, Jim, that you can improve your fitness level and work physical fitness into your life without a time commitment, but it requires a time commitment. It doesn't have to require a huge time commitment. One thing you can do is replace activities that really aren't all that important to you. For instance, save TV for your favorite shows and replace the channel surfing with something more active. Or you could buy a treadmill or stair-stepping machine or a stationary bike and use it while you watch your favorite TV shows or while you listen to NPR or your iPod, for instance, after you've just downloaded the latest segment of Intellectual Icebergs. So I can watch Sci-Fi Channel and work out at the same time. Exactly. It Make it me. fun. You'll find that you are more productive. Here's the deal. It takes time out of your day, but you will be more productive while you're working 
If you take that time to work out, then you were by just sitting, sitting, sitting. You also can replace driving with walking or biking. If you're fortunate enough to live near your destinations for errands or close enough to work, you could try walking instead of driving. Or perhaps you could bike to work. Another good tip is when you're trying to figure out a problem at work, you're sitting there pondering something, trying to find a solution, instead of sitting there, get up and walk around while you're thinking. This helps your back and neck to get up away from your computer. It helps stave off repetitive motion syndrome. And it helps the blood flow to the brain, so you get a double benefit. You are both moving your body and you're thinking more productively. You'll find that your body will start to crave these opportunities to move because our bodies were meant to move. They weren't meant to sit all the time. And here's the paradox, Jim. You'll find that you have more energy when you work out than you do when you don't. Now, what about those of us who hate to actually exercise, to put on the sweats and go walk on a treadmill? How do we force ourselves to stick to something we hate to do? You absolutely should not try to force yourself to do something that you hate. That makes no sense whatsoever. It won't work. The idea is to start out with activities that interest you and find out what you like. Find out what aspects of an activity you like. For instance, I like to walk on the treadmill while I watch the nightly news because I killed two birds with one stone. I'm being doubly productive. Or I really like to attend this class at the gym because I've really got the hots for the instructor. Or I love to take my walk with my significant other because this is a time when we can catch up and spend some really quality time together. So cultivate the aspects of the activities that you like. Another thing is there are so many ways to move your body. It's hard to believe that people couldn't find something that flipped their trigger. There's walking, there's hiking, biking, swimming, dancing, martial arts, rollerblading, skiing, gardening, even building things for these engineer types. You can also join a club, a special interest club, and find other like-minded people. For instance, a hiking club. I belong to the Colorado Mountain Club because I'm in Colorado. It's a wonderful organization, and there are hikes every weekend of all different levels from A to D. If you're interested in dancing, lots of communities offer dance classes. I live in Denver where the Mercury Cafe is located downtown, and they offer really fun vintage dance classes. I'm taking Jitterbug right now, and it is just a blast. I would think swing dancing and that sort of thing would be a tremendous workout. It's great fun, and it's a good workout. and Great way to socialize, too, tying it into the geek dating. You betcha. You betcha. You can also try an activity that you liked as a kid. Maybe you really enjoyed riding a bike as a kid, but you haven't been on a bike for a long time. That might be an indicator that you will enjoy it now. Another way to make working out more enjoyable is to work out with a friend or significant other. It really helps your commitment to have an appointment for certain days and times. You know that other person is waiting for you, is expecting you there. Plus, it adds a social aspect. You can look forward to talking, catching up, and laughing, and, and having a good time while you're working out. Another way to make it more enjoyable, as I've said before, is mix it up. Don't do the same thing all the time. For one thing, it's better for your body. If you do the same thing all the time, you begin to lose the benefits that you originally got when you started that activity. So if you mix it up, it's just less boring. You're doing a variety of things. Finally, stick with the activity long enough that your body begins to crave it. They say it takes about six weeks or so to establish a new habit. When you start something new, it seems strange to you, and you kind of have to have this argument with yourself every time you do it. If you make it a habit, if you hang with it long enough to make it a habit, it's just what you do. 
Okay, it's 5.30 on Monday. At 5.30 on Monday, I do kickboxing. It just becomes routine, and it's less of a struggle to make yourself get out there and do it. Okay. So how much time do we have to invest on a daily or weekly basis to really gain any benefits out of working out? As you've heard from some of the studies I cited, it really depends on the type of exercise, the benefits you're trying to gain, and really on your goals. Obviously, the more the better to a certain point. But on the other hand, anything is better than nothing. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American College of Sports Medicine recommend 30 minutes or more of moderate-intensity physical activity per day. That is enough to reduce the risks of many chronic diseases 30 minutes a day. To keep from gaining weight or to lose weight, we probably need more, more like 45 to 60 minutes of activity per day. But, Jim, the workouts do not have to be vigorous. You get the same benefits from moderate exercise as you do from vigorous exercise. It's just that you get done faster if you do vigorous exercise. So, for instance, walking four miles or running four miles, you get the same benefit. You're just done faster if you run. So if that's an issue for you, you might want to do more vigorous activity. Also, this 30 minutes a day or 45 to 60 minutes a day does not have to be in long blocks of activity. You can do short bursts of activities throughout the day to build up to the goal that you're shooting for. Research shows that the benefits are the same, and in fact, there might be a greater boost in the ratio of good cholesterol to bad by doing a short burst approach instead of doing your 30 or 45 or 60 minutes in one long block of time. It's good to know. I've been talking about moderate intensity and vigorous intensity, and there might be some confusion about that. Several organizations, including the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and some others, laid out very specific definitions about what is moderate activity and what is vigorous. Basically, walking at a moderate or brisk pace of three to four and a half miles per hour on a level surface would be considered moderate, while jogging, running, race walking, and aerobic walking at five miles per hour or faster would be defined as vigorous. As far as bicycling, bicycling five to nine miles per hour on level terrain or with few hills would be classified as moderate, while bicycling more than 10 miles per hour or on steep uphill terrain would be classified as vigorous, and so on. There will be a link to these definitions, but that gives you an idea about the difference. Great, thank you. What can our listeners do to get started on getting fit today, right now, if they wanted to, at the end of this broadcast, get up from their computers, get up, take their iPods and go do something? What can we do? That is a really great question, Jim, because acting today is the best way to get started. If you wait, you're going to get caught up in your routine, you're going to be thinking about other things, or you may even think about all the really good reasons why you just cannot possibly get physically active, and it just might not happen. So some actions you can take today are, as you say, get up from your computer, walk out the door, and take a walk. You can take your iPod if you want to, but while you're walking, this is a good time to plan out a walking schedule for the next week, for the next month, set goals, decide how much you want to increase, and so forth. That's one. Second, you could go out today and check out the nearby rec centers or gyms. Usually you can walk into these places without an appointment. They're glad to see you. They're glad to get new customers. Get a tour. Find out which facilities have the types of equipment or say if you're interested in swimming, have a pool and sign up. Sign up today. Third, you can start researching local special interest clubs like for hiking, biking, dancing. Make the call and find out how to join and sign up. Sign up for the first activity. Sign up for a hike next weekend. 
Fourth, you can sit down and make a list of activities that are of interest to you. Prioritize them. This one is the most interesting to me, and so forth. And then the top one on the list, the top priority, do that one today. And then make it a practice through the week to try them all and see what really interests you and see what aspects of them interest you. Finally, you can talk to a friend or your significant other about setting goals together and setting out a, a program, an exercise program together, and include one goal on that list that is for today. And the two of you go meet that goal today. Fantastic. Finally, I, d- I just want to say to our listeners that I know what pushed me into action. I know what flipped my trigger and made me take action. Everyone is different, though, and each of us has our own trigger point, our own reasoning process, so I have no way of knowing what is going to be the motivating factor for our listeners. It'll be different for all of us. Maybe it's that you want to look good, you want better health. Whatever it is, I really urge our listeners to think about taking action and making this change in their lives. The one thing that I can really promise from my own personal experience is that launching yourself into an active lifestyle will create wonderful changes in the quality of your life and health, and it'll make you look and feel so much better. If you have any questions, feel free to post them in the forum. I'll do my best to answer or to find an answer for you, because I know that you can do it. Thank you, Jan. I really appreciate the information. Sounds like a lot of stuff to think about and actually not even think about, but act on for a change. You bet. Act on. Thanks again. Thank you, Jim. Hi there, and welcome to the chatter section. If you're just here for the interviews, then skip forward to whatever's next on your iPod. This is Rob. This is Tiffany. And we're here to tell you all those things that, uh, well, probably don't have much meaning in your life, but kind of sort of relate to the podcast. I am learning to hate Skype. I had to do the IP version 6 interview three times. The first time because it was clipping badly. The second time because his side was too quiet. One of the really annoying things about Pamela is you cannot see the levels while people are talking. This is an evil thing. This is awful. Good piece of advice for anyone who wants to do an interview over Skype. Suggest to the person on the other side that they get a microphone that's actually attached to a headset. What this does is it enforces good microphone technique. One of the things that we find with most of our interviewees in the studio is that they tend to relax a little and move a little further back from the microphone when they're finishing their sentence or whatever. And this makes it a whole lot quieter, which is difficult to edit later. And you can't catch people doing that when they're over Skype. Another thing we might try, though, we were at a... Denver area podcasters meeting and somebody there suggested that when they have interviews over Skype or over the telephone, they each record their piece and then the person being interviewed sends their piece to the other person and they put them back together. They've still had problems there too though because sometimes Pamela drops at some point. Sure. Yeah, and and that also assumes that the other person has something resembling recording equipment which is not often the case. Right. Well, and then they've got to download Audacity which is free but it's still maybe a pain and if they're on a Mac they've got to get something else. Right. And, and of course, they have to be like something vaguely resembling tech savvy, which true. you can't assume from an interviewee. That's true. So what else? What else? Well, I would I would like to do the post-show CYA disclaimer for the Fitness for Geeks. 
And this is because I know somebody is going to send me a message and say, why the hell did you do this? Or what, what were you <laughs> thinking? And let me tell you what I'm thinking. There are actually two parts to this. One of them is that I see my side of the show as sort of like life coaching for geeks. It's sort of like life coach, massive scale, any area that I can think of to help geeks with their lives in usually ways that are intersocial or in, intersocial or job related. I will try to suggest very specific advice in those areas or find people who can give it. And that's why fitness comes into this because fitness affects the way that you feel. It affects your chances at finding a significant other. And oh, obviously absolutely. I'm big on that dating tips for geeks. I want everybody to be getting laid and having relationships. So, <laughs> And that's easier if you feel good about yourself. If you don't like yourself even enough to take care of yourself, you can't expect somebody else to like you right so this is very important in terms of self-esteem and in terms of how you feel and that will resonate in the way that you present yourself to others so that's why i did it so you can still write to me and say why the hell did you do this but i will point you to the show notes right so to, to the short version of it is she's not doing it because she thinks you're a bunch of fat pudgy type of people no it's, <laughs> no i'm doing that because it's it's part of the whole equation as far as i'm concerned i think it's valuable information jan definitely taught me things i didn't know and she definitely definitely gave very solid advice and yes a lot of that could apply to a lot of people but i think she made a very very strong effort to keep it geek specific whenever she could so i hope you enjoyed that segment and you can still criticize me for it but that's why i did it stand by it it's a good segment update from the brain spreadsheet we have sent brains so far as of monday we will have sent brains to 17 states mm -hmm. and six foreign countries so on our list here i'll hand you the list and you can start because some of these names i can't pronounce Okay, this month's recipients of Brains is Matthew in Florida, Alex of Digital Podcasting in California, Ewer in El Mello in the Netherlands, Jordy in Spain, Brett Thorson, our IPv6 guy in Virginia, David in Massachusetts, Ted in Hawaii, James in Maryland, Jorg in Germany, and Paul in Australia. So, guys, hope you enjoy those brains. No girls on the list, so I can't say guys and girls. Well, apparently girls don't want the brains. I don't know. Prove me wrong. Okay, so we received some very valuable feedback this past few weeks. Of course, we are very late again on releasing the show. That could have something to do with all the feedback. I think people are sick of waiting for us and are trying to boot us in the butt to get the show out. Um, David asked us to get even geekier when it comes to dating tips for geeks. So right now I'm working on this. I'll be doing a future segment, probably the next show, just in time for the dreaded holiday Valentine's Day. I'll do a segment on how to flirt. Jordy from Spain gave us a lot of really good input on the original IPv6 segment, which I'll be posting to the forum sometime in the near future. And we also heard from Jur via the forum, and he asked us to produce a music-free version of the show, which we've been asked to do this in the past, but it's usually been a request along the lines of, hey, I don't think you have the music bed levels quite right, and why don't you give me a version without the music, or tone the music way down, or whatever. But this time, we were given a really compelling argument. Apparently, he's not a person who has learned English as his first language. And as such, the music makes it more difficult for him to understand what we're saying, simply because he's trying to translate the English. And that's probably the best reason we've ever been given. We do strive for an international audience. We also got another one, oddly enough, this same month that suggested that we get rid of the bed, not because he couldn't understand us, but because he thought the music was just too distracting. And that's also a good, very good reason. 
So for that, for these purposes, if you hop on to the Intice.org website, you'll find a new RSS feed, which is words only. It'll actually have music transitions between segments, I think. We haven't put it we together yet. Yeah, we haven't actually <laughs> assembled it yet. That's going to happen soon. But it will definitely have the intro music and the credit music. And otherwise, um, we'll probably do a little bit of music in between segments. So right. we're not sure what that'll look like. But it definitely won't have the music fed behind the interviews, behind the interlude, or behind the chatter. Right. Oh, we had some really good news. We were featured on Digital Podcast during the weeks of January 2nd and 9th, and then I think even the week after that. And in addition, on Digital Podcast, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it's one of the podcast directories that we're listed on, Intellectual Icebergs made number 17 for their top 100 podcasts of 2005. And for this, a big thank you. Go us. Yay. And thank you for putting us there. We beat out a whole bunch of porn casts. We did. How cool is that? Yeah. We were better than porn. People would rather listen to us <laughs> than porn. Wow. That's so sweet. And also, Arl Iceberg hit number 92 on the list, which is also very nice. Definitely. Very cool. Oh, and we don't usually ask you to vote, but if you are so inclined, we would like to ask you to take the time to vote us up on Digital Podcast or Podcast Alley or rate our show or add or it to your favorites or something. If you don't, you know, it's all good. We know you listen because we hear from you and we yeah. get to see the podcast download numbers, but it's also nice to, to get it that way. If it means something to you, then hey, vote it up. Oh, another thing is if you use a podcast directory and you find that we're not listed or think we're not listed, let us know. Yeah, we'll just plop ourselves on there. Yeah, I try to keep ahead of that. But we, we do it as we find them, but they just show up too often. Yeah, there are really so many right now, but we want to be sure that everybody can find us. We recently found out that we were listed on Winamp's Shoutcast, and we didn't put ourselves there. So we got there via some other means, which is cool. Yeah. Further information on the Sinclair method thing. After copious research, I've discovered that there are numerous studies in the United States that have demonstrated that naltrexone doesn't work if the person's not drinking. This, of course, doesn't surprise the people in Finland at all because they've always said that you have to drink for it to work. But the studies are not geared to show how it does work. It's geared to show, they're geared to show how it doesn't work. And so most of the doctors in the United States are absolutely convinced that drinking and naltrexone is not something that could possibly do any good. So this is an uphill battle. We also have an artist update. Patrick Bacchanist has released his new album. I believe it's actually his first album. It's called Rationality. And it's finished. Yay! You can download the MP3s now at itsaboutmusic.com. You can search for Nephilim, which is N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M. And we've featured Patrick's work in the past on our shows, and it's it's awesome. So check it out. If any of you happen to show up to the RMIUG meeting in January and, like, didn't actually see us there, I'm sorry, none our fault. They couldn't find enough people to actually talk about internationalization, so they postponed that particular topic until probably March. So I will eventually talk about it, just not, like... January. Although there's there's some chance now that Steve Holtquist might be speaking at that meeting, and so you may both be there for that. You may remember Steve Holtquist from a couple previous of interviews of ours. Mm -hmm. We interviewed him about leadership, and we'll have him back very soon about at least one other topic, effective communication. 
Also, our lovely Tiffany was nominated for the Real Hot 100 list. Okay, yeah, but it was Rob who nominated me. Well, okay, it wasn't just me. It was me and about like 20 or 30 no, other people who those, I contacted. None of those people ever did it. <laughs> no, there were a few of them who did. No, they didn't. I get the emails when they nominate me. and You were the only one. Sorry. No, no, I guarantee that at least one of them did. Okay, well, maybe you only get an email the, first, the first time person you're nominated. nominated you. So, yeah. and, and I sat on that nomination for six or eight weeks or something I guess eight, I guess six weeks only because I didn't have a good picture so, so if you want if you want to see a hot picture of Tiffany <laughs> go to real hot 100 for those of you who don't know what this is it's the real hot 100 is compiling a list of, of hot women who are hot because of their brains or their activism within the community or politically or in various other realms so the focus is on what the women are doing as opposed to just what they look like and their goal is to publish this list at the same time that maxim's top 100 comes out and i've been out there i've been looking at the at the real hot 100 and i mean some of these women in addition to what they're doing which is amazing are incredibly hot yeah so very and, pretty and i have seen the maxim list the last two years so i know what those women look like i'm telling you guys these ones are better. I mean, smart is by far sexier. And that's about it for Chatter today. This is Tiffany. And this is Rob. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Initiating shutdown sequence. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Knucklehead by Introspect, an artist you can hear on Magnatune.com. The music for the interlude is More by Mr. S. The music for the second segment is Spirits of the Spring, Japanese Folk dance by synthetic movements the music for the chatter is pocket orchestra energy by synthetic movements the makers of intellectual icebergs would like to remind you that when using an acetylene torch don't feel the flame to see if it's sufficiently hot please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org intellectual icebergs is released under a creative commons license and is an onk infinity production